was going to mention uh, Grady and Rick uh, have started to take my notes and the and the studies, and we we're starting to put them up on the website. So with the with the actual recording, you'll be able to grab the PDF that I use to kind of guide us in the morning. Um, but I think it'll go up after the lesson. Um, but we've thought about how to get it to you before the lesson to might maybe help the follow along because I know I packed a lot, maybe too much into some of these studies. But um, let me just pray for us and get us started this morning. So go ahead, Judy, you can come sit down. And Jeff, you, you sit, sit boo-boo. <laughs> Lord, we're just so thankful for this time to gather before you and to gather in the company of the saints and those whom you have worked your wondrous work of salvation in. And we just thank you for the truth. We thank you for the truth that rises up out of this letter to the church in Rome and how deep and how probing and clarifying and glorifying to you it is and we just praise you for that Lord we just want to pray that this time would be to your praise and to your glory and to our edification and that we would do all of this in your most glorious name our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, we're going to continue um, in this section of Romans. It really runs from Romans 2.1 all the way out through Romans 10 is the natural break point um, or transition point. Uh, that Paul has, and as Ryan and I were just talking, and this, this this section of Scripture has been very, very probing for me. Um, I think much of that having come out of a false works-based system of religion that has been around for hundreds of years and holds captive um, to this very day billions of people. Um, uh, it's very raw. And I, I, I wanted to just share and just stir up the thoughts, you know, I know I have um, wondered when I read uh, these passages, um, will I be one who will be shocked when I stand before the Lord, right? There's always been a mystery there for me. Will I be one who will be shocked? Right? When he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Right? And it's because you read and you study and you hear about <clears throat> so many who have had the knowledge of God but never had the true faith in God. And it it at times in our walks, it can be, worrisome, right? 
But I think this, this section of Scripture has anchored me down more in that beautiful truth than any other section of study or Scripture I've ever been in personally. Um, and I just hope that it will be helpful for you as you walk through those valleys. Um, and I'm always thankful that that was one of the biggest sections of scripture early in my walk that I memorized as I was walking back into my mother's funeral after having said one night as I read the book of Hebrews that I would never walk back into the Roman Catholic Church for the purpose of worship. I remember that being inserted so specifically in that, that prayer to the Lord for the purpose of worship. And there I was going back into the Roman Catholic Church, but not for the purpose of worship, but to honor my mother, and much more importantly, to honor my Lord in my withdrawal, removal from that system of religion. It was the first time I've ever sat in a Catholic Mass where I didn't get up and I didn't get down and I didn't kneel down and I didn't take, and I was absolutely the only person in the entire congregation. I just praise the Lord with Psalm 23 because it is the shadow of the valley of death. It's not the valley of death. It's the shadow. And I think this section of Scripture will help us distinguish between the two of those very, very well. So I want to just read to refresh our minds you know, Romans 2, 1 through 10. But I want to break them in this transition. So let me read for you 2, 1 through 6 of Romans 2. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, and here's absolutely key, that you will escape the judgment of God. Now remember, Paul's writing this letter to the church of Rome. He's writing it to the congregation of Rome, and he's using very specific language, you, right, to the reader. Or do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But, and now he's just peeling into the person who's sitting here listening to this letter or reading this letter with deep conviction in their soul. He's saying, but you, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you were storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment, really key, circle, underline, bold, whatever you do, righteous judgment, will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. And we've gone over that the last three weeks carefully. That we as believers and unbeliever alike will be judged by our deeds. 
But to what end is the question you have to ask. You'll also notice in the EV translation anyway that the, there's a shift from the personal pronouns in this section, which are used 12 times in the first six verses, and then shifts to the demonstratives, which use those representing, in this case, two groupings of people. So you'll see that as we move into Romans 2, 7 through 10. And whenever Paul makes those transitions, he's making a point with those transitions. Okay. You'll notice that the two groupings will be narrowed down as those who did not have the law who perish and those who do have the law and are judged by it. And then ultimately, he begins to bring in another thought, which is to the Jew or in today's Christianity, the self-righteous professing Christian in order to show that, and this is the point we made two weeks ago, that God's judgment has no partiality to work. We are judged based on our works, pure and simple. And there is no partiality in that judgment whatsoever. Right? For the unbeliever, that should be the most fearful thought you could ever imagine. For the believer, does it not stir up your soul a little bit? To know that there isn't a single deed, thought, in my Christian life that will not be brought under that day of judgment. And as we looked at the text, thank the Lord, <laughs> there is much text to help us see that very clearly, the reality of that. And if that, through the love of Christ, doesn't compel us to carefully walk, I don't know what will. That's the point Paul's making. So let's look at Romans 2.11 through 12, just to see these bookends of God's judgment and the partiality that Paul is bringing attention to because he begins and he ends this section with it. Look at Romans 2.11 for a minute. And we see it right there. For God shows no partiality. For all who've sinned without the law, so the focus becomes the law all of a sudden, without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. And then you run all the way out to the end of this section at Romans 3, 19 and 20, and Paul brings all this up to this final transitional statement regarding God's judgment and the law and the issue of human works. He says in Romans 3.19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be new word that will cover the next three, sec three chapters of this book, justified, Right? No human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And at that point, and this is the best way to think through this text, there was a point in every one of our lives 
for this was us. That's Paul's point. No one escapes this judgment. And it is the law of sin and death that override it, right? No one escapes this judgment at that point in our life. But it quickly invokes another thought for the believer, and it comes from Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace, through faith, and not of your own doing, so that no one may boast, it is the gift of God. And that's Paul's point when he moves us into Romans 3.21. Totally separate, totally distinct, totally apart from the law and our deeds and that judgment. Justification through faith takes place in the life of the believer. And as Paul will go on to say in Romans 8, the law of sin and death on one side and the law of the Spirit freeing us on the other side. Think about that, because this is all one wondrously complete thought of Paul, all the way out through Romans 8. So let's look at Romans 2, 7 through 10, which is our, the text we're, we're now coming to. Let me just read that for us. And here you'll begin to see these two groupings that Paul helps us see, or maybe say it this way, two divisions of humanity. In verse 7, to those who by patient in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. And as we had talked two weeks ago, that's one of the most powerful passages a works-based religion can bring before you if it's ripped out of its context. Right? Which should, anytime you've got a, a proof text coming at you, that someone holds to a heretical view and uses that text very effectively, you had better go back to that text and make sure you understand it. And boy, this is one of them, right? I found the commentaries of some of the old, old, old guys so helpful, Stifler being one of them on this section of Scripture. He says, the first principle was followed by an appeal. That was Romans 2, 1 through 6. Repent, right? The second one, which is 7 through 10, is followed by a what he calls an appositional sentence, for those of you that are grammar teachers, um, uh, appositional sentence and exposition of what deeds appear in the judgment and their award. So two sets kind of set up next to each other that have very different outcomes. And what Stifler goes on to say is it is quietly implied that there are but two classes of men 
and consequently but two kinds of deeds. And he pairs verse 7 and 10 to those who by patience and well-doing, which he calls the character of the deed, seek for glory and honor and immortality, which is the pursuit of the deed, he will give eternal life, which is the award of the deed. And then again in verse 10, you see he starts with the award of the deed, but for glory and honor and peace, for everyone who does good is the pursuit of the deed, to the Jew first and also the Greek, which is the character of the deed, which brings in this issue of no partiality. And then you look at the other side, verse 8 and 9, where it says, but for those who are self-seeking, there's the character of the deed. See the difference? And do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. There's the pursuit of the deed, to obey unrighteousness. There will be wrath and fury. There's that award of the deed. So he literally flips in the next verse, verse 9, he starts with the award again, just like he did in verse 10. There will be a tribulation. There will be tribulation and distress, the award. For every human being who does evil, the pursuit, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, the character of the deed. Now, William Hendrickson, just a wonderful expositor of the Scriptures, says this about verse 7, and this really helped me, and it's what I want to convey this morning. Let me just read Hendrickson's point on verse 7 and consequently the rest of, of 7 through 10. And he picks up on the word patience and well-doing, and he calls it patient continuance. He says, the word is used to signify perseverance, patience, and endurance. Now I want you to I want you to kind of look at this very narrow definition of those who, right? And just stick with me a little bit on this. I think you'll I hope you'll begin to see it. A perseverance with resistance to all that opposes, namely all temptation all snares, all persecutions, and in general, to all that could discourage or divert from that patient continuance. However small a degree. And this is where he just helped me understand. Because we read those texts and are you not trying to find yourself in there? Are you not trying to find yourself in those texts? My good deeds, my bad deeds, the proper things I do, the improper things I do, right? I'd like you to think about when John David walked us through the Beatitudes another set of texts that we often try to identify ourselves in. We try to use that long section of the Beatitudes to say, I think I do that pretty good. I struggle with that one, but I think I do that one pretty good. And at the end of the day, in the Beatitudes scale, I'm kind of up here, right? We, we often do that. 
What does the scriptures tell us though? That's the question. Hendrickson goes on to say this. It is not meant that any man can produce such a perseverance in good works. Paul says it like this. No, not one. Do you see it? You see the Beatitudes? You see this text? This is the standard that God has given us that no man can stand in. We're judged, and at that point in our life, if we have not received the righteousness of Christ, we are guilty because no man can stand. And that's the point of the Beatitudes and this text, is not to give us a scale to say, how am I doing, Lord? (laughs) It is to say, you can't get here. Hendrickson goes on, and you have to appreciate the time these men were living in. They were living in the tyranny of Roman Catholic dominance over everyone, burning people. The, the, the memories of people being burned at the stake were right there in the minds and hearts of these men. He says, for there is only one, Jesus Christ, who can glory in having wrought out a perfect righteousness. He alone is holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners, which is all of humanity. See that very clearly. But here the apostle only declares what the divine judgment will demand according to the law, to which the Jews were, and he focuses in on the Jews, which is where Paul goes, adhering for justification before God and rejecting that righteousness which he has provided in the gospel, despite the fact that it was Abraham who believed and was therefore declared righteous, right? It was always there. This doctrine has never been foreign or lost in the scriptures. It's always been there. But from the very beginning, works-based religion, this idea of taking the commandments of God and finding where we are on the scale is what has always been used. And I fear, dear brothers and sisters, having walked through a lot of this, as many of you have in the visible church today, that much of the church is absolutely lost on the reality of this text. Right. Or worse, they've just gone towards antinomianism. It says it doesn't matter because I got my checkbox checked. Right. Which is really where he goes in his day. He said he marks what the law will require for the justification of man. In order to conclude from it, as he does in the sequel, that none can be justified in this way because all are guilty. And there it is, right? That's where you have to sit. This shows, and here he comes with the the church of Rome. (laughs) 
of his day. This shows how ignorantly the Church of Rome seeks to draw from this passage a proof of the merit of works and of justification by works, since it teaches a doctrine the very contrary. For all that the apostle says in this chapter is intended to show the necessity of another mode of justification than that of the law, namely by grace. Amen? That's what's so important here. That is what is on Paul's heart all the way through this book of Romans. It is the central heart cry of Paul. Hendrick says, which the gospel sets before us through faith in Jesus Christ, according to which God pardons sins and the apostle afterwards shows in the third chapter. And, and as we unpack this, it's so important to understand that your eternal life is in the work of Jesus Christ because everything we have ever done does everything to condemn us. Everything condemns us. And the gospel's intention there is obvious. We should be overjoyed with this blessed gospel and desperate to share the truth of this gospel, which begins with these passages that put us all in this clear state of condemnation and trusting in nothing in the flesh. And yet look how polluted the church is with the flesh. So we see here that Paul, Romans 1.18 through 3.20 is judgment. So that every mouth may be stopped. Now, with these thoughts in mind, I couldn't help but walk through these passages. And I was so thankful as I began to look at them through the lens of what we just discussed. Because they are fearful passages. Right? And if, if they're fearful after this, then then we should continue to anchor ourselves down in what it means to be justified by faith and not by works. Because we still seem to think that somewhere in the midst of all that, we still have something to do with this in an eternal sense. And I think the text will begin to unpack uh, that everything that, that we participate in is the result of something that has been done to us from completely outside of us. And that's Paul's point, right? But look at Matthew 7, 21 through 23. And I want you to think about the way Paul constructs Romans 2, 7 through 10. The Lord says in Romans 7, I'm sorry, Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. There's the warning. There's the shocker. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And there is the character of the deed. It is for the Father. It is for our thrice holy God. It is not for ourselves, right? That's the pursuit that Jesus is talking about here. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? What are those? Deeds. 
the very deeds they're about to condemn these individuals. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. And it is because the character of the deed was not to glorify Christ, but it was to glorify self. Same message as Paul brings out in Romans. And then the fearful judgment, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There's that disobedience. Move a little farther out in Matthew to 25, and we'll hear our Lord again in verse 31. Matthew 25, verse 31. Very lengthy passage, but well worth spending a little bit of time on in this context. Same structure, I think you'll see. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, everybody. And I, my note there was, who's the one that's high and lifted up? Just one. And He's the judge. On that day, I'm sorry, he, and he will separate people one from another. So here comes the division. As a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats, and he will place the sheep on his right, but on the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, and this is another passage that really leaves you a little bit foggy about how good works play into our eternal judgment if you're not careful, right? As he says to this, he will separate, one, separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And there's the award. And here comes the deeds. For I was hungry and you gave me food. And I was thirsty and you gave me drink. And I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him. Notice that word righteous. Because that's what is missed. How do you assume you're righteous? And from where does that righteousness come from? Right? That, that all-important question. Right? Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you and naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick and in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you. Now here comes the character of the deed. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me, which is the character of the deed done for the glory of Christ, to exalt Christ and his powerful work in your life versus yourself. And here comes the other half, verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, here comes the award. 
Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And here comes the deeds in verse 42. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. And I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. And I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will answer saying, Lord, interesting how they refer to him as Lord. When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And there's the character of the did, the deed. And it was not for Christ, but it was for self. And that is really the mark that should stir our soul. When I assess my day, did I glorify Christ or did I glorify myself? Right? Which is precisely the way that Paul constructs Romans 2, 7 through 10. And this is kind of get you down to the bedrock of this text. If we were to apply this judgment presented here through all these scriptures based on deeds alone, how would we need to divide the entirety of humanity beginning with Adam and considering the following passages? Look at Isaiah 64, 6, so you know it well if you want to just listen to it. Isaiah 64, 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. This is one of the reasons why there's a big movement to unhitch yourself from the Old Testament. But I got sad news. It is even more amplified in the New Testament. It's more aggressive in the, Old, in the New Testament. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. So apart from no intervention, this is us. Paul says the same thing in Romans 3, 10 through 12. And we'll get to it in the next week or two. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And that is Paul's point. And I would offer, as you are discipling, and this is a discipleship text, you can't sit down and have coffee over this. Right? <laughs> you know what I mean? You can't. You have to seek people out, build relationships that will allow you to unpack these truths in their lives. Because you can't quick fix this. Right? I mean, you were
which brings all that text beautifully into play, doesn't it? We really have to see right. what we truly want. Right. And that's what you show us. Your only hope right. is Christ. Which is why those texts, Galatians 2.20, 1 Corinthians 5.17, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. But it is Christ who lives in me. The life that I live now, it is, it is Christ, right? Therefore, he is a new creation. Precisely the point. You cannot salvage the old man. Yeah. Yeah. He's dead, isn't he? But he's kind of like right there, as we'll see when this is what's good about this. This is exactly what Paul's going to unpack for us in Romans 5, 6, 7. That body of death, that is a a reference to the old Roman punishment of strapping the dead body for someone who murdered someone to their face until that disease killed them. That's what Paul's referring to. And in the Roman days, you would see that convicted person carrying around that body of death. So, with all that in mind, I want you to picture all of humanity from Adam to present. And I, wanna, I want the righteous over here. You guys don't have to get up and go over there. And the unrighteous over here for all of humanity. What's that going to look like? This is Paul's point. Everybody's over here. Everybody? This was the most beautiful point when my face just kind of fell in my hands. Listen to this passage. Go to Isaiah 53. It's just beautiful. Look at verse 10. And just let your heart be stirred. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring that firstborn of many brethren, brothers and sisters is right there. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And please mark this. By his knowledge shall the righteous one My servant make many to be accounted righteous. You look as intense as I was when this was hitting me. There's one over here. There's one over here who has fulfilled perfectly every single jot and tittle of the law. And he 
the righteous one is going to make many over here to be accounted as righteous. Man could not write this book and hold it together in this glorious truth of the gospel. It's just not possible. You couldn't even fathom how that could be done. And yet, that's the, oh, that was just written by man. Just unhitch yourself. Get rid of that, right? If you don't like it, get rid of it because it's all about you. Exactly the, the character of the deed. It's all about me, not Christ, right? By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their, praise the Lord, iniquities. Therefore, every one of those deeds continues to stand in judgment. But at the end of that, the declaration for those that love Christ is not guilty. Penalty paid. Verse 12. And here we come. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, and this is my second favorite part, and makes intercession for the transgressors. It's not that you're no longer a transgressor. There's the, there's the reality that frees you from the works-based ideology. We're still transgressors of that law to remind us constantly that that one sitting over here has done his work, as the writer of Hebrews says, to the uttermost. All the way to glory. Now, I just found it so helpful. Read with me while we've got a few minutes left. Go to 1 Corinthians one twenty six. And just let this fall on you all the way to 2.5. And the, here's the question. How did we get here? How did the, the, the many that are accounted righteous out of all that are condemned end up back over there with the righteous one? Here's how, says the same author, meaning the Holy Spirit and Paul. <laughs> right? It's beautiful. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. And you know, I'm sorry, but you almost have to understand that when Paul wrote that, he had to say not many. Because who was Saul? He was one of the brightest. He was taught by all the greatest of teachers. He was both Roman and Jewish and had all the privileges. So in many ways, Paul's in that very narrow group. Verse 27, but God chose 
what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. That is a very wordy way of saying, you don't even exist. You're not even worthy of being mentioned. That's what he's saying. Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God who did it on your behalf. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. And Paul uses this 97 times in the New Testament, in Christ. It's used 98 times. One by Peter when he's referring to Paul. The other 97 are Paul, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, because this is exactly his point. In Christ, you have the righteousness of Christ and are now freed from the condemnation that rightly declares you guilty if it were not for Christ and being in Christ. That's why those words mean so much to Paul. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us... Look at, I love the way, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness from God, and sanctification from God, and redemption from God. I just added because that's his point. So that as it is written, let no one who boasts, I'm sorry, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And there goes the crowns for all those good deeds that we were rewarded for that goes right back to the foot of Christ. And that's why, right? Because we know precisely that it was him and it was the, the work of God to prepare those works in advance so that we might walk in them to glorify God and not ourselves. 2-1. And I then, when I came to you, brothers did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ with him and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And I thought I would share this just finally. This is from James Montgomery Boyce, who was the inheritor of the library of the man you quoted this morning beautifully. And I just love this as a way to bring all this together in terms of what do we do with this, right? Boyce says this, It is only the crucified Christ dying in the place of sinners who saves. The example of Christ does not save us. Watch out for that one. It's as subtle as this. Faith in Christ versus the faith of Christ. And with the faith of Christ, I can do anything. I can name it and claim it. I can speak it into existence. I can do everything. It turns the Christ into I 
like that. And that is a big part of it, isn't it? They move your mind from faith in Christ as the object of your salvation and justification to faith of Christ, that I have the faith that Christ has so I can do all the works that Christ did. Fearful how subtle Satan is, right? Listen to how Boyce unpacks this 50 years ago. The example of Christ does not save. Jesus is not saying to us that if we will only follow his example and try to live as he lived, will we find happiness in this life and salvation in the world to come. That is not his message at all. No man was ever saved by following Christ. Following is involved, of course, after we are saved, we are to follow him. He has left us an example for that. But we are not saved by his example. We are saved through faith in what he has done on the cross. After that, we can follow him. Moreover, we are not saved by his teaching. Jesus did not say that he could point out the way to God and that if men and women would only follow that way, they would find him. That is what teachers of the other world religions have done, but not Jesus. He did not say, I will show you the way. He said, I am the way. You see the difference? And you see how subtle it is? And you see what it produces is a self-righteous, religious person who is condemned and perfectly content versus the sinner saved by the grace of God in Christ alone. And there it is right there. That's what I wanted to try to convey this morning in my heart. He said, I am the way. Besides, the entire teaching of the word of God is to the effect that he made the way by dying for us. 